Thank you for joining us again this week. If you are new to the podcast, you may not be familiar yet with just the general scope and depth of the conversations that take place between Jim and me um, that many of our listeners have come to um, come to expect. Um, because as we engage the world that we live in from a Christian worldview, you know, a necessary component of that is the actual engagement portion of that, like being in the world enough to understand just the everyday influences that shape our view of reality, but then also standing outside of it to the effect that we're able to be, um, and these are Jim's words here as he's explained this before, but be able to be, you know, both sought and light in the way that we're able to prevent the world from moral decay in a sense, and then also cast light, um, the God's light um, in his vision um, in a much needed way. So in an effort to truly engage the world and the powerhouses of cultural influences um, and the longings and hurts of those that we do daily life with, we have tackled a lot of divisive topics um, or potentially divisive topics. We've covered things like politics and gender and mental health and moral failings and that's, that list just keeps um, going on and on. And it's going to go on with this conversation because this is not going to be an exception to that. We are going to engage the topic of the actual world that we live in, not the pe people or the power institutions, but creation itself. So we are going to talk about environmentalism. Now, Jim, you recently wrapped up a series on creation care, and you published a series of blogs on it. And we'll link, of course, all of that in the show notes. Um, and you started both the blog and the series with this idea that for too long, we have approached the topic of creation care ideolo ideologically instead of theologically. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah. Uh, so many things related to this topic, creation care and environmentalism, have been politicized by both the left and the right, Democrats and Republicans. Everybody's been guilty. Uh, and that politicization has invaded our thinking to such a degree that when it comes to environmental concerns and challenges and responsibilities and commitments, we tend to, you know, engage them through the lens of our political moorings before we listen to what the Bible actually says, or more to the point, instead of often what the Bible actually says. We care more about ideology than theology, and we're making our beliefs more about ideology than theology, and we carry our political views like religious views, and we almost make our ideology or our political views our true religion. Uh, there's a wonderful book on on uh, issues from a Christian perspective on creation care by um, uh, Sandra Richter that we can link in the show, new, show notes called Stewards of Eden. And she opens up the whole book with the same kind of concern, you know, that in the United States, if you are an environmentalist, it's assumed you are a Democrat. If you are a Republican, it is assumed you can't be pro-environment. In other words, somehow environmental advocacy has been pigeonholed into a particular uh political profile and it's become almost guilty by association. But I love how the words she adds next, which were so critical. She said, but of course, Christians are first the citizens of heaven. And therefore, our alliances and our value systems are not defined by American politics. And of course, that's absolutely right. So what we need is to walk through this as Christians, first and foremost, and not as Democrats, not as Republicans, not as left or right, not as supposed conservatives or progressives. Uh, to chase after solid theology instead of clinging to political ideology. And of course, that should be our stance with every issue. I mean, this is not unique. But when something deeply biblical has become so ensnared in partisan politics, uh, we need to remind ourselves of it anew.
Do you think that it's the fact that we don't know how to do that well, or we make that mistake that has, I don't know, I guess what I'm asking is like, do you think that it is us leaning more towards ideology that, and which can be divisive that prevents churches from talking about creation care more often? Um, because I, as I mentioned, you just finished a series here, but even you started that series explaining that you actually haven't talked about this in the 30 plus years, or not at least not as directly as you did with this series, but you hadn't talked about it in 30 years worth of sermons. So do you think that's a part of it? Why, why was that for you? Well, before I get into what, what the reason was it, it was for me, because it was kind of a complicated, uh, complicated thing. Um, I, I do think that there are so many men and women in leadership and in teaching roles and leadership roles and, and pastoral roles who shy away from controversial subjects because either the church structure is of such a nature or the the church culture is of such a nature that it literally, I mean, they, they fear losing their job if they say the wrong thing or if they go up against the wrong, you know, cultural political headwinds. And so that that breeds this sense where there's such blowback, it breeds this sense of just wanting to shy away from hot button issues, which is so tragic because that's failing the church at, at our point of greatest need, particularly in our day when there's so many things where people are crying out for what does the Bible say about this and how do I think Christianly about this? And, and I think that in other episodes we've talked about, even from the very first one, just, hey, the, 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 the answer is not shying away from it. The answer is engaging it in a way that helps us all agree I mean, think about it uh, theologically and biblically and, and to, to move on that kind of shared footing. Okay. So, but yes, many do shy away from this because of its uh, polarization and politicization. My own personal reasons were, were several. Yes, it's a divisive issue, but I've, I've never shied away from divisive issues just because they were divisive issues. Um, but uh, that was really the least of my concerns. Um, I just didn't feel that it was a necessary divisive issue to strap on. And that's one of the things that you often weigh. Okay, I'm not afraid of de dealing with this, but I'm not going to strap something on that's highly divisive if I feel like it's unnecessary to do at this particular point. You know, pick your battles kind of approach. Another reason is I, I, I did not see it as a critical spiritual issue. Uh, and there was not a sense of urgency with me. And I hadn't ever taken the time to give it the real biblical theological attention that uh, would be needed to speak to it and just really do a deep dive into it. And I was not personally convicted or burdened. Mm. So let me go back to all of those and confess. Um, uh, it, it was something that I shouldn't have shot. It was necessary to strap on. This is a, this is a very significant issue. Uh, it is a critical, deeply spiritual issue. Um, there jolly well better be a sense of urgency on this. Um, it needs to be given the biblical theological attention that it deserves. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, we need to be, I needed to be convicted and burdened by this. So all that to say, as you may recall, first thing I said at the start of the series was I stood up and I said it very sincerely, I said, I need to ask your forgiveness. As for those of you who consider me your pastor, for not addressing this directly, not a single message, much less a series, in 30 years of leading. And I said that was that that my my sin toward you. I, my my charge is to bring the full counsel of God. I have done you a great disservice, and I ask your forgiveness. Having said that, buckle your seatbelt. 
because I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to forgive, but now I'm going to repent. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm going to address this. And, and with, with all the, the fervor of a, of a, of a, someone who really has been chastened on this, convicted of this and, and deeply in the best sense of the word converted to, you know, the more I looked into this biblically, theologically, and obviously culturally and, and environmentally and scientifically. Um, I, I just, I just feel such, uh, I can only just say, I'm just a state of being contrite that I was silent. And so, uh, shame on me. Hmm. I think everybody appreciated that introduction, to be quite honest. And um, I don't know if you got any kind of personal feedback from that, but I thought that that was yeah really helpful for everybody to hear and just that. They probably walked away. What else isn't he telling us? You know, what other subjects <laughs> yeah. you know, that we don't know that he's supposed to be teaching? <laughs> uh, I want to talk a minute about just the fruit of that biblical theological deep dive that you did take um, in preparation for this, because um, I, I do think that this topic is a little bit more difficult for people to know where in the Bible to really look. And if you don't have that theological grounding, then we can lean towards that, like, you know, ideological, you know, um, I don't know that that can be um I don't know, our compass rather than the theology that does come from the Bible. So where where do we start? Where do we start to look in the Bible to figure out what God's heart is for this? Well, you begin with foundational biblical teachings that most Christ followers know. They just never applied it to creation care. Here are the big four, as I kind of tried to summarize it for, for our church. Um, uh, the first and most foundational thing to understand about creation is that it does not belong to us. It isn't ours to simply do with as, as we please. It belongs to God. It's his. As it says in the 24th Psalm, the earth is the Lord's. I mean, it's kind of unequivocal. And he goes on to say, and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. Plants, animals, he owns the cattle and a thousand hills. And on and on it goes throughout scripture. You find that declaration throughout, not just 24th Psalm, but you know, throughout, even on, on into Colossians, uh, talking about Christ and creation. Second, we have been charged to care for creation. Uh, the nature of that stewardship, as outlined in Genesis 1 and 2, is very clear. We're to reflect the image of God toward creation through uh, words such as governing, reigning, tending, and watching over it. And it's dominion, not domination. Um, the directive was truly creation care. Um, third, that charge did not end with the Garden of Eden and the fall of humanity into sin and the world into ongoing brokenness. Just as God seeks to redeem us from sin and those of us who have been redeemed seek to extend that message and share that redemptive work with others, uh, God intends to redeem all of creation. And thus we're to continue to take our, our role of uh, duty of creation care very seriously. In other words, it wasn't something that ended with the fall. Uh, Paul wrote about this in Romans 8, how creation... Uh, looks forward to redemption and is groaning in anticipation of it, awaiting that day. And then finally, a theology of creation care extends uh, in a very holistic manner. The care is very holistic in nature in regard to plants and animals, both domestic and wild animals, uh, ecosystems, um, the environment itself. Much of this is given through Old Testament principles and directives to the people of Israel regarding uh, plants and animals and land and such. Uh, but that doesn't mean it should be dismissed when people just say, well, that's just Old Testament. You know, yes, many of the laws that uh, given to the people of Israel were fulfilled in Christ and are not meant to be specifically applied today, for example, dietary laws and such. But what is present in each and every one of the environmental directives is really 
showing and revealing the heart of God in the matter toward creation. So uh, they are of great value and they're a very um, help open up our eyes. This is like, okay, whether we let land lie fallow every seven years, the point is what was the, what was the heart of God behind that, that directive? It was to make sure that the land um, remained, was sustained and was as fertile for the next generation as it was for the last and such. So it's not hard to get the principles behind these things. So here's the foundational theology behind creation care. It was four things. Uh, creation belongs to God. We have been charged as image bearers to care for that creation. Creation is included in God's redemptive plan. And then fourth, that care involves responsible stewardship. Hmm. Having that bit of theology in mind, you know, I have to ask you, what are your thoughts on global warming? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the basic science uh, on this has been known for 200 years. Uh, the basic science, you know, greenhouse gases, such as um, water vapor and carbon dioxide and methane, uh, absorb infrared or heat radiation from the Earth's surface. This trapped energy acts like a blanket around our planet, warming the Earth's surface in a phenomenon that is known as the greenhouse effect, which is a good thing. I mean, apart from that, without that natural warming effect, a life on Earth would not be possible. So nobody argues with the greenhouse effect. Again, it's, it's old science. And as for climate, uh, the truth is that it's natural and normal, normal for there to be climate change. Nobody, nobody denies that. That's been known for quite some time. Uh, since climate is something dynamic, it's not static, all kinds of things can affect it. Again, many of them natural. Uh, for example, when the earth rotates you know, around the earth, around the sun, I'm sorry, and tilts on its axis, it gives us different climatological seasons. Um, and, you know, from fall to winter and winter to spring and, and so on. A large volcanic eruption can temporarily cool the earth by creating these particle clouds. And you've got El Nino and all these different other things that kind of affect sometimes for up to months at a time. So everyone is in 100% agreement on the greenhouse effect and natural climate change. So when somebody says, well, climate change can happen naturally, they're absolutely right. Uh, but here's what's different now. In recent years, the average global temperature has been rising at a state that greatly exceeds anything that can be explained naturalistically. That's just, you can't avoid that. And it's been year after year after year after year. And that begs the question of human involvement. When there's short-term climate change, natural factors are almost always the cause. But when there's long-term climate change that can be charted, like we are experiencing with global warming, then human activity is almost always the dominant driving force. And you can chart the change that we're talking about back to the industrial revolution of the 19th century when fossil fuels began to be widely used as energy sources. I mean, you can just literally just almost go back and point right to that. And that's when it all took off. Since that time, carbon dioxide has increased by about 50% in the atmosphere, unlike anything that could be explained naturalistically. Um, so that's, that's kind of, where we're at. Now, you may have heard rumors <laughs> that not everyone Maybe. <laughs> buys what I just said, specifically that human activity has as much to do with it as uh, science is pointing toward. I remember reading an interview with Sir John Houghton uh, upon the event of his retirement. And if you're not familiar with that name, it's actually a very important, significant name in, in, in matters of climate and weather. Um, 
because he had a long career in researching the physics of climate and weather. He had been a physics professor at Oxford University in England. Uh, he had been the chief executive of the UK's meteorological office, and he was chair of the scientific assessment for the IPPC, which was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, he was also a devout Christian, and he died fairly recently, he died in 2020. But in his retirement interview uh, that I read, he was very candid, I thought, and, and transparent about his field of study. He said that in 1990, the skeptics were right. He said they were right. You know, you couldn't unequivocally say that climate change was happening because climate is so variable. He said they, you know, they believed it was happening because of the basic physics of the greenhouse effect. I mean, they knew that carbon dioxide was increasing. When you add carbon dioxide, you add to the blanketing of the Earth's atmosphere, you add to that, you add to warming. I mean, it's basic science we've known for 200 years. But it was too early to know how much of it was human caused. Then he said that by 2001, they were able to say much more clearly that it was much more likely, very likely actually, that the warming that uh, they had seen since the 1970s was largely due to human activity. And there was getting less and less room for, you know, for there to be skepticism. By 2006, he said, the scientific debate was essentially over. I mean, the science was in, it was just not something really that could be debated. But he said that what happened also around that time frame, though, was a significant misinformation campaign, particularly in the United States, to try to persuade people that uh, what scientists were saying was either uh, wrong or you know, not true or exaggerated. And, you know, you look back on it, you can see that much of that was spread by those who had a vested interest in fossil fuels. But now in 2022, it's virtually impossible to pretend that the science isn't clear or certain. Uh, no credible scientist questions long-term global warming aided by human activity, even those involved in the fossil fuel world. It's, it's settled science. But now the question is this, what effects will this warming have on crops, on ocean currents, and on particular regions of the earth? And how soon if things don't happen, uh, if things don't change, I'm sorry. The collective goal, which uh, if people who are up on this or have been following it in the news, is to try to enact things that will prevent uh, a rise of uh, anything beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius in terms of warming. Uh, but even if we reach that goal, it will still have massive repercussions. I mean, that's kind of like what we hope to limit it to. But that still has repercussions. Uh, even the warming we've already uh, reached right now before the 1.5 hopeful goal is resulting in erratic weather and melting ice and glacier loss and the rise in sea levels and uh, changes in agriculture and loss of forests, you know, uh, decline in fisheries. Uh, drought in some areas, uh, flooding in others, depending upon the way, you know, wh what part of the world you're in, increased human health problems. That's where we're at right now. Uh, not when we reach the hopeful goal of keeping the rise to no more than 1.5 total degrees Celsius. We're currently on track to have it be 2.7 uh, Celsius increase by the year 2100. Now, you may think, you know, 1.5 degrees, 1.6 degrees, 2.7, it all seems really low until you dig in and you find out that even one tenth of a degree increase affects the entire planet. That's wild. Yeah. So 2.7 or 27 times that 
can be apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, so our climate, and this is another thing too, that, that to put it in perspective, our climate in terms of warmth has been stable for the last 10,000 years. The previous 10,000 years and all that time, no long-term change. Uh, suddenly a leap of not a 10th of a degree or two tenths of a degree, but 27 tenths of a degree. I mean, wow. Um, just this past August, it was revealed that given the current pace of climate change due to global warming, 3.3% of the Greenland ice sheet, which is around one, uh, 100 trillion uh, tons of ice will melt into the sea. That will result in raising global sea levels uh, nearly a foot between now and, and 2100. Or you can think of it this way, the United States coastline is expected to rise as much over the next 100 years, I mean, 30 years, as it did over the last 100 years. So uh, globally, that is, you know, what that means, people says, well, what does that mean? Well, it will displace millions of people around the globe, wipe out entire cities and change the face of civilization. The reality of all this, though, thankfully, uh, Lex, is, is getting through even to those who were once skeptics. Uh, in 2014, Pew Research uh, found that only 28% of white evangelicals bought into global warming, much less to human activity behind it. Uh, in 2014, they repeated that study and found that uh, it had, it had um, uh, by 2020, I'm sorry, that that number had climbed to 44%, almost doubled to those who said, no, wait, we do believe in it. And, and, and it, is, it is real. There is human activity. And so there's this huge upward trajectory of people um, seeing that the science is incontrovertible and buying into it. And now uh, the vast majority of all adults believe that climate change is happening. Uh, we're behind a lot of it. Uh, and it's a crisis. I think something that worries me, though, is that I think that a handicap of Western individualism is that we just don't tend to think about how our actions are going to impact others, you know, less in the far distant future. You mentioned the year 2100 than even in the present. Like so much of what you were saying sounded terrifying, but also distant. And so even though we can hear stats like that that worry us, um, they all involve future environments and future generations. Um, but because it's so far in the future, we don't tend to want to make any changes now, especially when it comes to spending present dollars for future generations. Or being inconvenienced so, or our quality of life change. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And not that, as you mentioned, not that we're not already experiencing some, you know, some difficult side effects of that, but what you, a lot of what you mentioned is going to be more in the, in the future. So how do we battle our obsession with living in the current moment um, so that we can appropriately care for future generations? Oh, it's, it's, it's a very important question. And it's astute in terms of the assessment of our mindset. Uh, you're right in your assessment, but it, it you know, here's the irony. It shouldn't be true of Christ followers. Um, we should be marked by selflessness and self-sacrifice and a deep concern for others, even if it's the generation that follows ours. The key to addressing this is death of selfishness. But only Christians have that really built into our faith. Um, it's a hard sell to the world. Mm -hmm. It really is. Um, but here's what's changing right now. I mean, yeah, I talk about things that are happening in 2100 and various other things that will be cataclysmic. But as I mentioned, and you mentioned, a lot of this is happening right now. And that's why right now it's starting to get people's attention for how they're living right now. It's affecting them now. And I think that um, sadly, uh, though you hate that that's happening, that's a, at least it's a good thing. It's a wake up call 
because I fear that only fear <laughs> will 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 um, kind of a perverse self focus where we finally, you know, our narcissism and our self focus and our selfishness will kick in in a positive way because we don't want our quality of life affected. So all of a sudden, oh my gosh, global warming, let's fix it because I don't I don't like the ramifications. And I think that that's what's getting our attention. And um, so I do think that it will be this era, um, my generation, but also including your generation, um, and that that between kind of the current makeup of population, it, this is going to be the one that's going to solve it or not. This is going to be the one that will be the first generation, the first era of people, population group that has really tasted what global warming is capable of. And will taste its 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 edge, and will be the ones that will hopefully that will be enough to wake it up. We only have about eight or nine years to act to make a difference. If we don't hit certain goals and benchmarks in the next eight or nine years, we missed our window. Mm -hmm. That is an amazing responsibility and also terrifying at the same time. But you mentioned that you know we we are starting to feel some of the effects of it, but. But actually, like a lot of the world has felt the effects of this for a lot longer than I think maybe some of us seem to be experiencing the effects. And I guess what I mean by that is we are in the West in particular, we are not only, you know, present minded, but we are also nearsighted when it comes to how our actions influence others. We don't often think about our lack of creation care and its effect on those people that we can't see, particularly the poor who've been feeling the effects of this for a lot longer than we have. So can you bring to the forefront of our consciousnesses, consciousness, consciences, <laughs> there we go, first second, how we need to consider creation care in light of our calling to care for the poor. This is really what first broke me and got me convicted. And, and really, and the more I dug into this, that, that kind of made me a bit of a wreck. And on a bit of a mission on this was what you just raised. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really, I'm surprised uh, that more is not written or reflected upon in regard to the opening salvo if you will, of Jesus' ministry. His first recorded words are remarkable and unmistakable in focus and challenge. Uh, he opened up the scroll of Isaiah and read the words that the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to bring good news. And most people just say, oh, that's right, that's right. That's how he started off, the gospel. They don't finish the sentence. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Hmm. Uh, Jesus came to bring good news, what's known as the gospel, the redemptive message of God for the world. There was also a concern for a particular group of people. It wasn't solely, the gospel wasn't solely for the poor, but there was a heart of God toward the poor. Uh, one of the most overlooked aspects of creation care is what you brought up, is that the litany of nightmarish concerns uh, tied to the environment, such as extreme heat and drought and mudslides and the rise of intense storms and hurricanes and the melting of glaciers and, and wildfires will fall disproportionately due to where the poor tend to live in the world and the climate right. of those areas will fall just, but not, not just for that reason, but it will fall disproportionately on the poorest of the poor. Um, if you haven't downloaded and read, it's free, it, but it's a 70 page PDF document called the least of these or loving the least of these from the national association of evangelicals. It just came out uh, as recently, 
I urge you to do so. We'll put a link in the, in the show notes. But that was its emphasis, that the poor will bear the greatest burden for what is happening environmentally uh, due to a lack of creation care. There will be a disproportionate devastation. There already is a disproportionate devastation uh, as it's happening now upon those that are most defenseless. Um, let, me, let me give you four uh, heartbreaking um, realities that the NAE report outlined. Uh, I think I can do this fairly quickly. First, the poor and their children are more affected by disasters, particularly in health concerns. The reason is because they have no savings to deal with crop or home loss. They had livelihoods that were more likely to depend on ecosystem resources that would be wiped out. They have no flood insurance or disaster insurance. So when something like Hurricane Ida or Hurricane Harvey wiped out many coastal communities a little closer to home, uh, the poor in those areas could not afford to rebuild. Hmm. And then, of course, the health issues that I mentioned related to disasters. I mean, climate change related health problems result from both um, abrupt disasters and gradual changes, such as heat waves and spread of diseases and increased parasites and air pollution and droughts and fires and floods. Poor children are more likely to have asthma, uh, which is made worse by increased heat. Uh, heat waves kill people who lack access to air conditioning and can't pay to travel to cooler areas and can't even open up their windows at night because of crime risk. Hmm. We just don't think this way in the West. Right. Second reality, the poor and their children are not able to afford the costs of prevention and survival or the technical terms adaptation and mitigation. Just think of, pre of prevention or adaptation. People in poverty are less likely to have uh, the reserve funds to allocate to adaptive efforts. Um, if they choose to spend money, for example, on adapting to or preparing for changes such as building cisterns or moving their settlement further inland or adding technology to save energy or water. They do so at the sacrifice of other necessary items, such as food. Um, then there are the costs of survival or mitigation. Uh, preventing greenhouse gas emissions means changing the way the economy is structured, at least to some degree. Mm -hmm. New technologies are first available to the wealthy and only later become available to poorer people. Uh, purchasing low emission buses or low emission vans for public transportation, investing in other alternative energy infrastructure costs money. And poor communities and countries don't have it. Um, here's a third reality. The poor and their children are more likely to be displaced. Disasters, uh, resource limitation and conflict can cause massive displacement of people within and between countries. Sea level rises through the melting of the glaciers is causing the relocation of countless coastal groups and islanders. We're already seeing um, coastal Alaskans forced to leave their homes or as the sea lakes overtake the land and Pacific Islanders uh, are relocating as their islands disappear. Coastal groups and islanders are often among the poorest of the poor. And when displaced, they have nowhere else to go and they have no other means to survive because they were living off of that water based life. Right. One last reality, the poor and their children are more likely to be affected by ensuing conflicts. Even the most cursory study of world history uh, shows that lack of resources leads to violent conflicts over territory and over goods with the poor, often the victims of the conflict. 
So those who are Christ followers would be wise to remember such things and to remember that uh, those of us who are hopeful, planning on entering the kingdom of God, supposedly have one thing in common. You know, uh, as Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless and you gave me a room. I was shivering and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit. I was in prison and you came to me. So creation care has a very clear relation to the poorest of the poor, that it cannot help but be part of what Jesus said would separate the sheep and the goats. So what is the church's call to action then? Like how can we, knowing how dear this is to God's heart and the people that it affects, how can the church, instead of being silent on the issue, be at the forefront of creation care? Well, since everything in scripture points to the big ideas of working to ensure that land stays fertile and well for every generation, to prevent the extinction of animals and to protect ecosystems, the target on the wall is clear. Work toward that. Uh, involving yourself in both personal actions and joining with others for collective group actions and supporting efforts politically and economically that uh, in ways that you feel works toward that goal. And that's going to look different for each of us. We can have all kinds of conversations about the best way to do it and how to balance our needs and re from resources as well as how to best care for those resources. Uh, we can have good conversations about how to work politically toward you know good policies, how best to engage the international community and such. Uh, but there should be no debate about the target on the wall, um, preserving and protecting land, preserving and protecting um, species, preserving and protecting our ecosystems and environments. And I don't think we should get overwhelmed by the challenge. I was talking about this to our church recently that, you know, there's an old line about, you know, think globally and act locally. And I think we can overlook the simple things that we can do as individuals. I mean, you, know, you care about the rainforests, then OK, make, you know, do a little bit of homework and we'll take two seconds on Google and support those businesses and initiatives that promote the sustainable use of rainforests. Uh, you care about animals going extinct. Well, much of what is hurting uh, our oceans and our land in regard to animals is simply trash. Um, so stop littering and start picking up litter, which helped with recycling. Uh, recently, our staff, you know, you were part of this. We spent a half day picking up trash up and down the road surrounding our physical campus. And our county has this program, and a lot of counties do that if you want to organize a cleanup project, <clears throat> they provide everything you need for free. Uh, you know, bags for the trash and surgical gloves and, and orange vests, you know, to, by, your, by the side of the road and litter pickup sticks so you're not touching things with your hands. And then you bag it up and they come around later and they take it away for you. I mean, uh, so that's what we did. And I, and I can't begin to tell you how many of our staff, and you may have been one of them, I don't remember, who came to me later and said, that was one of the most meaningful projects and things that we did together as a staff ever. And uh, you care about global warming and climate change? Well, I mean, just switching to more energy efficient appliances can make a difference. I mean, your refrigerator is going to go, stove's going to go. So when it when you replace it, uh, have an eye toward the environment and something with more uh, energy efficiency. Uh, or use more public transportation. You know, I, I, was, I was saying recently that one of the things Susan and I like to do with our with our grandkids when we uh, there's a lot of fun stuff to do downtown Charlotte. And so we drive to the nearest light rail station. And we take it downtown and our kids love riding on it, our grandkids, because for them, it's like the monorail at Disney World or something. In fact, it looks like the monorail at Disney World. And collectively as a so, you know, we just do that. It's a small thing. But and collectively as a church, there is so much that can be done, uh, including specialized serve days that have, you know, serve both, you know, your city and the poor, but the environment, uh, whether it's planting trees or picking up trash or even mission trips. 
that serve the poorest of the poor in environmentally critical ways. You go to an area that has been devastated by various environmental things, but there's stuff that that we can do that, you know, we talk, we do mission trips and we crunch them in our sleep. So many churches, we don't think about where you can kind of have a twofer where you can do a mission trip, serving the poorest of the poor in a way of a critical need, but it happens to have an environmental edge. So you're mm-hmm. serving both at the same time. And I think, I hope more and more churches will look at those kinds of combinations. Well, and lest we not forget, too, that one of the beautiful ways in which God created the body of Christ is that when we are acting in accordance with his will, even if it's just one of us by ourselves, we are light to others in such a way that others, we, you're, we're culture makers or we can be culture creators um, in that sense. So just because, I mean, even whether you're a parent or just within your friend group, I mean, you just acting um, according to God's conscience, like attracts other people to want to follow suit. So it may seem like an individual act that you do, but because of you know how good God made I don't know how good God's will is, it does end up being really attractive to others. And then you kind of create this whole new culture within your, um, within, yeah, just your, your, your local context, I guess is the best way of putting that. Well, this is great. I, I want to end the conversation here just because, um, I feel like I want to direct people to the show notes because there's so much, um, with what you've spoken about and, um, the books and the articles that you've mentioned, and then your um, own blog posts on this that I think would be really helpful next steps for people. Um, but again, just thank you for taking the time out to, to, you know, to share this with our listeners. I hope this was really helpful and provide some clear next steps to anyone who's listening. And again, I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but I'm sure it's going to be another great episode. So we hope you're there for that. Thanks.